0: to most of you this morning on the first panel, but I think I see some new faces, so I'll reintroduce myself. I'm Ian Vasquez, the director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. This Sunday, uh, the French go to to the polls to elect the new president, and one of the candidates, one of the two candidates, is Marine Le Pen, uh, right-wing populist with some sort of nasty uh, views. I don't think that she'll be elected, but um, what's, what's important is uh, to take note of uh, the fact that she got this far. I think that's newsworthy and that's worrisome. And it's part of a, a trend we're seeing around the world, which is the rise of authoritarian populism. And it can be seen in places as diverse as Russia, China, Turkey, Hungary, uh, and Greece. Populist politics have played a role in the politics of the United States, of the United Kingdom, and other Western uh, European countries. And, of course, Latin America has had its share of populists over the years and certainly over the recent 10 or 12 years, with Hugo Chavez and his regime in Venezuela being the most emblematic case, although that region uh, seems to be moving away in recent years from the populist uh, trend. The rise of authoritarian uh, populism is probably the biggest threat to global liberty uh, today because it affects both rich countries and poor countries. And it's calling into question and actually eroding policies supportive of free trade, free speech, greater integration, more liberal uh, immigration, and other such policies that have been features of uh, global liberalism for decades. And that only a few years ago, uh, we would have been uh, surprised uh, that, they, uh, that they would be uh, under threat and under so much threat uh, today. So to talk about what, what it is that we're seeing, why is this happening now, and what can we uh, perhaps do about it, we have uh, three excellent speakers from different parts of the, the world that I'll, I'll introduce beginning with Gabriel Calzada who is the president of Francisco Marroquín University in Guatemala. Francisco Marroquín University, for those of you who don't know, is really the the center of uh, Latin American liberalism, classical liberal thought. And uh, if you haven't been there and you plan a trip to to Guatemala for whatever reason, I urge you to go there, because you'll be surprised at uh, uh, what they've done uh, with this modern uh, university. Uh, Before actually being at at Francisco Marroquín University, actually uh, Gabriel is Spanish, he's not Guatemalan, he started a a very uh, important think tank, uh, Instituto Juan de Mariana in Madrid, uh, that got a lot of attention and uh, uh, in some cases, hatred for some of the the policy studies it did, calling into question uh, uh, policies of green jobs and uh, other things that, that got them notoriety. Dalibor Rohak is uh, a research fellow in foreign policy at the American Enterprise Institute. He was uh, formerly uh, my colleague at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. And before then, he was working in Europe. He's worked in uh, the Legatum Institute in London. And before that, he worked in the president's office of the, the Czech Republic. Uh, He is somebody who has become very well known for keeping his eye on developments, especially developments in Europe, uh, political and economic uh, developments, and we're pleased to have him back at Cato for a little bit. And of course, Tom Palmer, uh, my colleague Tom, who is a senior fellow here at Cato and holds the George Yeager chair for Advancing Liberty at the Atlas uh, Network, where he's also the executive vice president for international programs. So I think uh, maybe it makes most sense for us to begin by asking the question, what is authoritarian populism? Is there uh, somehow a way that we can define that? And perhaps I'll begin by asking Dalibor uh, this question.
1: I guess the simplest answer would consist of invoking Justice Stuart Potter's test of pornography. I know it when I see it, but I don't think that's a a very satisfactory answer. Um, Because arguably populism is a vague term. It's being thrown around far too casually when the bad guys win an election. It's populism when the good guys win an election is democracy. I think we have to be more careful when thinking through the term. So populism can refer to a specific political style, um, in which case um, it really is not a very useful term because all politics by its nature is populist, more or less. All political messages left, right, center are crafted based on what politicians believe voters want to hear to some extent. So I think it's more interesting to look at the uh, substantive uh, content of authoritarian populism in the Western world today. And and, and, and on that front, I think there are two defining features we can can look at. The first one is the dichotomy between uh, between good, pure-hearted people on the one side and self-serving, corrupt elite that has either betrayed or left behind the ordinary people. I think that's that's a defining feature of populism, whether it's on the right uh, or on the political left. The, the, that structured narrative that, that pits these two groups against each other. As such, populism could maybe be a helpful corrective to excesses of mainstream politics. There is nothing inherently virtuous about centrist politicians or mainstream political platforms. Uh, so when we say, by we I mean, I guess Tom and I to some extent have this conversation before, when we say that authoritarian populism is a problem, it's not so much because of the populist Component, but rather of the authoritarian component, which complements this dichotomy between ordinary people and elite with essentially a rejection of constraints imposed on politics. It's not so much that authoritarian populists would advocate an overthrow of democracy, liberal democracy, and its replacement by by totalitarianism, although you have a small number of communist or or fascist parties uh, operating. Uh, operating in Europe, but it's rather this idea that a big enough popular mandate entitles politicians to do pretty much anything, to, 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 to get rid of the usual checks and balances, the usual constraints, uh, and, 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 and so forth. This is what Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, called illiberal democracy, the idea that if you have enough votes behind you, um, there is nothing that can stop you in, 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 in your political project.
2: Tom,
0: did you want to add anything? I have a
1: slightly different take on it. I think
2: one of the elements that we find in populism is this idea there's the people and the not the people. And that, Dalibor mentioned that in the context of elites, but it takes other kinds of forms as well. There's the authentic French nation and the other ones. And even our president, almost exactly one year ago, said something at a campaign rally that was really an expression of the populist mentality. He said, I have it here, the only important thing is the unification of the people because the other people don't mean anything. And that was a statement of the populist message. Unify the people because the other people are not the people. And you do find that message in all the populist (laughs) movements we would identify It's a common feature, the true Hungarian nation, the true Polish nation, French nation. We've been through that in Germany, and unfortunately, it's coming back again, language we haven't heard since 1945 that is now part of, just in the last year, a political discourse in Germany about uh, the folk, and this term has not been used since 1945, and now you hear it regularly in German politics. So I think that that's a, another element of the populism. Then you add to this the idea of a powerful state that will fix our problems. Don't worry, the big leader, whoever it happens to be, will fix all of your problems. And that uh, combination is quite uh, deadly to liberty. Right. Yeah.
3: I would add, I think, I'm not sure that authoritarian uh, populist is is really a helpful um, concept. Um, I I think there is uh, populist rhetoric and populist policy. And and, um, populist rhetoric, I think every party in the world is populist in in that sense. It's uh, uh, political marketing. And and, um, uh, if you know a party that is not populist in in their rhetoric, please let me know. I, I haven't found one um but the problem is not politic, uh, populist rhetoric the problem is populist policy and and um, and uh, this is connected to what talibor uh, was saying you, you identify it when you see the, the 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 policy in place and and it's always a policy um moving towards centralization um uh, identifying the people with the leader and the leader with the solution uh, that the people have and and therefore centralizing uh, as much as the leader can, um, in order to, to, to get the power and to make the state the, the solver uh, of all problems.
2: And one thing, an example, of, uh, Erdogan said in Turkey, another expression of this mentality, someone was being critical and he said, who are you to criticize us? <laughs> we are the people. It was clear what he was saying by that. I, I am the people. And who are you to be critical because you are not the Turkish people? And that was, again, just a strong statement of this us versus the other
1: ones who are the enemies of the people. I think it's a characteristic inkling of authoritarians to claim to have a special relationship, direct, unintermediated through political institutions with the people. You, You heard that in President Trump's inaugural address when he essentially said that his oath of office was an oath uh, directly to the American people, whereas of, of allegiance to them. Whereas the oath of office was obviously an oath of allegiance to the Constitution and to 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 to, to, to laws of the United States, which is a very different thing. So 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 that's how uh, the sort of institutional structure in which politics takes place gets to sort of pushed aside, and there is this leader who claims to be speaking on behalf of of, of, of the true...
0: So, so is there such a thing as populist policies? I mean, if uh, a, a government leader calls for more trade protectionism, is that a populist policy, or is it the way that he has formulated the proposal that makes it a populist policy? Or tries to pr- push it through?
2: So I think Gabriel was suggesting there are populist policies. I'm going to disagree. I think it's Populism is a style, and there are policies that can be good or bad. Minimum wage is a dumb policy, whether it's proposed by elites or by a populist movement. It's just a harmful policy that uh, visits unemployment on the unskilled. Uh, It's true populists like to promote that, but there are a lot of non-populist elites who believe that as well. So I don't think that it's The policy protectionism or minimum wage or whatever, that's the populist elements. It's the style of politics. And as a general rule, that style of politics is usually going to produce anti-liberty policies. But uh, it's, it's a big debate in the academic discussion. Are there populist policies or populist politics? And I tend towards saying, I think it's populist politics the policies can be fallacious, mistaken, misguided, independently of how they are promoted.
3: I would agree in that. I mean, uh, this uh, po- uh, populist politics. But, but um, populists seem to agree always in certain uh, policies, um, like uh, eroding division of labor and um, um, changing constitution has become something very popular uh, among all populists uh, in Europe and in Latin America. So I think you you find certain policies that, that, uh, and then you find other policies that the populists try to to encourage because uh, they're good for their centralization, but you you find them also in in non-populist leaders or organization.
1: I guess rather than talking about it in the abstract, um, might be helpful to evoke, for me at least, to evoke examples of two countries from my part of the world, Central Europe, that have had direct experience with this style of politics. Those two examples are Poland and Hungary, where you had uh, nationalist populist parties uh, ascend to power over the recent decade at various points in time uh, with very sizable popular mandates forming one-party governments, which is quite unusual in a part of the world that was has long been used to coalition governments due to proportional representation. And, and, and those two governments, um, run by Law and Justice Party in Poland and by Fidesz in Hungary, have followed very similar trajectories when it comes to rule, and law, rule of law and, uh, and, 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 and sort of constitutional politics. So in both places, uh, you, had a, uh, you had a deliberate effort at, uh, aimed at dismantling checks and balances. Uh, populating all public sector, by-party loyalists, uh, political appointees, uh, undermining uh, civil society, undermining independent media. In Hungary, there is now a law being discussed in parliament, will be voted on in a couple of weeks, that will label non-governmental organizations receiving foreign funding as foreign agents. It's a law that mirrors Uh, a very similar piece of legislation adopted in Russia in 2012. Um, In Hungary, Hungary has been the home of the Central European University, which is by far the most prestigious academic institution in that part of the world, in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, It's funded mostly by George Soros. uh, And uh, under a new law voted on last month, um, that university will not be able to operate as before, which is because Mr. Soros is... Viktor Orbans, Prime Minister of Hungary's political nemesis, and there's been this effort to drive, uh, drive him out of the country. Uh, on, the, on the economic front, both in Poland and in Hungary, there is now this talk of reindustrialization, state-led development, uh, creating a domestic capital owning class, uh, and that has translated itself into various sorts of ad hoc taxes and levies and, and new licenses imposed disproportionately at foreign. Businesses and big corporations, and and that has led actually to a proliferation of cronyism and corruption on a scale uh, which is which is quite striking even by Central and Eastern European standards.
3: Just one more thing. I think uh, a way to identify populists is the, usually a populist when they come uh, uh, into power, the first thing they do is to try to change the rules by which they have been elected, and and. This is the first time you're in front of a populist. And and this happens all the time and everywhere. Yeah, I
0: mean, it seems like uh, the style of populism isn't just to try to change the rules, but in doing what populists do, they violate the rules that already exist in order to change rules further. It seems to me that both of those things are going on. At least that's certainly the way that uh, populism has worked in Latin America.
2: Just add one element, this is not new. Uh, The Roman Republic experienced this. The parties of of Marius and the Julius Caesar were the populist parties against those who represented the Senate, which represented the Constitution. So you think uh, Cicero and uh, uh, Cato the Younger, from whom Cato was very indirectly named, (laughs) defending the Constitution and the rule of law against the people who said, we represent the masses, uh, the populi. And so this... Is something that's going on for a long time and the first thing they do is to try to attack the Constitution because they hate the idea of the procedural republic. And that's what we believe in, in a very formal sense, a procedural republic, a republic of laws and rules. What they believe in is a republic of will, the will of the people as distilled in the will of the leader, Hugo Chavez or this Maduro, or Erdogan or Viktor Orban or whoever says, I am the people and they really believe it.
0: So uh, what has caused this trend and, and why is it happening now? I mean, what are, are the causes political or economic or are they psychological? Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Shall I begin? Oh, sure, go ahead. So, so first of all, it's not something that started last year. So if you look at political parties that can be broadly classified as right-wing populist authoritarian and you look at the vote share going to those sorts of parties in Europe, you see a trend that has been steadily increasing since early 1980s. These parties have been around for, in, many, in some cases, since 1950s or 1970s. They've gradually become better at doing politics um, and and what we are seeing today um, is is a simple continuation of the, of, of the trend. Um, now the question of why people vote for 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 these parties is is a subject of really interesting academic debate. You have you have two big streams of literature that tries to uncover that. So so the first stream of literature looks at. Uh, Individual-level drivers of populist vote. So, why do people, as individuals, cast votes for for these parties? What are the characteristics of individuals that that do that? And and so, typically, you have surveys done in individual countries at specific elections, and 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 then you try to uh, establish a link between between voter characteristics and 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 voting for for populists. Um, there it looks like there isn't a simple sociological characteristic of voters that vote for these parties. It's not necessarily a question of, of, of income or poverty or, or education. Uh, it's more a question of perceptions, uh, identity, culture, sense of grievance that might not be reflected in reality. So income is not a strong predictor of voting for populists, uh, but perception of, of economic deprivation. Uh, deprivation is. So, so you have this uh, slightly messy literature that looks at individual-level drivers, uh, the sort of the demand for populism, and then on the other side, you have literature that, that deals with country characteristics that uh, are associated with success of populists. So there you are looking at individual uh, at country-level uh, data instead of individual-level data. And, and and there are a couple of, I think, really interesting studies done uh, The first one uh, by a bunch of authors that looked at the experience of the Great Depression, where uh, in countries that experienced the most severe economic downturn in the early 1930s, um, those countries also then experienced uh, the largest rise in populist vote. And that effect was particularly strong if those countries were on the losing side of the First World War or had very little experience of, uh, of liberal democracy beforehand. So when you had fertile ground, for, for these kinds of movements uh, together with an economic shock, then you had the big effect. And, and, and there was a more recent paper done, uh, I think last year, that, that looks at all the financial crises from 1870 to 2014, where they find that whenever you have not just an economic downturn, but a, but a big financial crisis, that leads to an increase of the vote share going to uh, far-right populists by up to 30% within five years of that initial economic shock. And it sort of gradually goes back to, uh, goes back to normal, if there is another election, that is.
2: It, it, it's a difficult question to know what's causing when you have so many countries and so many different experiences. One thing that's remarkable is the fact that the populist leaders do see themselves in a common cause. So Le Pen and uh, Petri and Germany and so on, they do see themselves as a kind of anti-liberal, in the classical sense, international. And there is connection. And of course, they all are now claiming that Trump is supporting them and boosting that, look, America's gone down this road. Surely this is the right path for us. Uh, Constitutional republics have failed. America has rejected that. They're really pumping that up, I think, excessively uh, and claiming that they have this global mandate but it's not clear that there are common economic causes. I'm very skeptical of a lot of that. John Judas has a new book out. It's a very good political history of populism, but the economics I think is is just not very convincing, his argument for an economic cause. Uh, There was a crisis and afterwards there was some populism in some countries and not in others. Why some, why not others? Uh, It's not really clear. I think that we do need to look at uh, psychological foundations uh, Jonathan Haidt has been addressing this and he pointed and directed me to Karen Stenner's studies of authoritarianism and two of the drivers of, an, of triggering authoritarianism are one, a perception of fallen social status uh, and the Germans certainly experienced that after the war. They said we won in the east and we were stabbed in the back and betrayed and so on after the First World War. Uh, but a fallen social status combined with a perception of an external threat. And in this case, we have Islamism. uh, Even if it's statistically a tiny chance of any one of us being harmed by it, it's a 24-hour news cycle, constant pictures of terrorist attacks someplace, and that generates a feeling of uh, being under siege. And those two features in combination seem to trigger very strong authoritarian responses. We need a leader a strong hand who will protect us uh, from these changes. So I think we need to look at those features. One other that I think has not gotten enough attention, but I think it's very important, is the fragmentation of media. We've lost trust in the media as such, and sometimes for good reasons. There is such a thing as media bias. We certainly are aware of that. Uh, but at the same time, a fragmentation that makes it difficult to see what the brand name is. If something is in the Wall Street Journal, I'm much more likely to quote it than if it's in the, uh, the Denver Guardian, which is a, a fake news site. It's called the DenverGuardian.com. It looks like a real news site. It's one of these ones that sprung up. You think it's a real newspaper. It's not. It's just this phony thing. And there are now thousands of those. And it's very hard for us, I've even been been fooled by these, that my God, is that true? And I go and check, it's not. Uh, And this has led to a general um, uh, lack of confidence in stories about our societies, about what's really true in the world. And that fragmentation is is a serious problem we need to help to reestablish the idea of credibility in media, that there's fact checkers and so on and so forth, because there is this utter explosion uh, of nonsense on the internet, and it's very difficult for people to know. So, the Kremlin this is the last point that needs to be brought in. Uh, hundreds of millions of euros are being spent, have been spent. We now have some of the paper trails uh, from the Kremlin to undermine constitutional democracy or constitutional liberalism. It's a conscious strategy. They place lots of small bets all around the world. They're not all one unified strategy. They don't pick one party. Uh, In Greece, they have supported three parties because one of them's gonna work. What turns out two of them are in the government. Independent Greeks, which is a far-right party, and Syriza, which is a far-left party, which are in a coalition. Uh, of the far right and the far left. And which, what did the Kremlin got a, get out of that? Two Kremlin cronies, Minister of Defense and Minister of Foreign Affairs. They didn't care about anything else. They got the ones they wanted out of that. And they have been driving this with a strategy that's unique. They do not say Russia's great. That's for Russians. They don't care what externally people think. What they are promoting is nothing is true There's no objective reality. Nothing is better than anything else. You think you have freedom of speech. Come on, this person was arrested. They play up every police victimization in America. And there, it's a real problem. But they play this up as if it's an everyday, monstrous experience. America is the worst place in the world, and that is how it's portrayed in European media. Peter Pomerantz wrote a book about it. The title alone tells you enough. It's a great book. Nothing is true and everything is possible. And that is the Kremlin's media strategy. There's no truth. It's post-truth world. And in that post-truth world, nothing is better than anything else. So dictatorship is just as good.
3: I I would say uh, that it is political, it is economic, and and, and it is um, psychology what is behind. So you have economical, political, and, and psychological factors there. Um, political because uh, this is something that grows in democracy. I mean, this is the son of democracy. This is, uh, it, it is born in the, uh, under democracies and it grows under democracies and under certain circumstances, it, 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 it becomes, uh, it, it kills democracy. And um, it has economic causes uh, not always, I agree that not always, but usually. The windows uh, opens when, when, when you have an economic crisis because this is the moment when you can say that we have a common cause and there's a common problem and you have one leader that can solve the problem. And this is where we come to the to the psychological origin of it. That is when the people think that the solution to a crisis can be achieved by a leader. Uh, and that is the psychological aspect of it. And, and this is... A, Big danger that people really believe that it is the leader, the one who is going to solve it through the state. Tom mentioned the the lack of
0: confidence in the media, but isn't it true that the lack of trust in institutions generally have played a role, and at least that's my observation in Latin America, where traditionally people simply have not trusted institutions that we take for granted in in wealthy or advanced uh, countries. And that uh, is fertile ground for the guy who is the strong man to come along and say, because of the way that I operate, I can actually get things done. And it seems to me that uh, what's telling about uh, developments in the United States and so many countries is that there's been a big drop in in trust in institutions here and in in other countries, uh, which... Or leads to the question about what's going on there. Why, why has that been happening? And maybe that's one of the important proximate causes.
1: So I have, a, I have a paper which is in the working paper stage right now with, with two co-authors. One of them is Andreas Johansson Heiner, who is a Swedish political scientist, where we look at data from European elections between 1980 and 2016 uh, and trying to identify the correlates of, of a large share going of those going to pop, right-wing populist parties that would be find out is that uh, economic factors as such at country level don't seem to matter that much. Um, inequality doesn't seem to matter that much. Immigration doesn't seem to matter that much. All the sort of things that you would expect to matter uh, are only very weakly related to this vote share of, of far-right populism. But one thing that really matters a lot um, are indices of corruption, whether it's the World Bank's uh, control of corruption metric or or, or a few other uh, very similarly constructed uh, indices. So those are very strongly related uh, with, with the voucher going to authoritarian populists on the right-wing side. And, uh, and I think that goes back to this question of trust. I mean, at the moment when people really become nihilistic and, and totally disenchanted with with, with the political establishment, they, they stop seeing a difference between, let's say, Emmanuel Macron in France and, and Marine Le Pen, there are many people on the far left in France, who are not going to vote on uh, on Sunday because they just lost any kind of trust in, in 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 political institutions being able to being able to deliver. So so I think it's an important part of of, of, of the overall story. There's
2: one other dimension and that is conscious campaigns to undermine independent checks and balances. So the first thing they go after is the judiciary. And we saw this in Poland, the gutting of the independent judiciary, illegal behavior on the part of the new government, which small addendum, they are a minority government with a two-thirds majority because of the Polish voting rules are so strange. Uh, So they came in with a 36% and they have two-thirds of the parliament because under Polish voting rules, all the parties that don't reach the threshold have 100% of their votes allocated to the party that got the most. It's a very strange principle. Uh, Next election, our Polish libertarian friends hope they're going to be smashed and they'll move to a coalition of center-right, center-left parties. But they attacked the judiciary, Hungary, the judiciary has been under attack. There is no judiciary in Russia. Uh, to speak of, it's, uh, it's simply non existent. And now to come a little closer to home, um, I'm not, uh, uh, I hope, not too alarmist on this, but our president's attacks this is a Mexican judge, he's a Mexican, he can't judge an American. And now our attorney general said, How can it be that some judge sitting on an island in the middle of the Pacific? So, I thought it was called Hawaii. It's it's actually part of the United States. This is a federal judge, not someone sitting on a rock. But this was an attack on the judiciary. And I think it's something that's very significant. And then the media. And here, uh, it's unfortunate, but the term lying press has a historical precedent. Die Lügenpresse was exactly the term used to attack independent media in Germany, that's such an extreme comparison, but it chilled my blood to hear that concept, lying media, lying media, lying media, lying media every time. And what the president said at CPAC, if you can find it online, it, its uh, uh, he's kept attacking the media. And he said, the problem is, and we're going to do something about this, the media don't represent the will of the American people. And we're going to do something about that. And that just sent a little shiver up my spine that there's this undermining of the media as such, including such left-wing media as the Wall Street Journal, by the way, which is the lying leftist Wall Street Journal in these circles. Uh, and even Fox News, when they've had someone critical, is called the left-wing Fox News. or just like mind-bending. <laughs> so I think these are disturbing to, to begin to hear little... Snippets of this conversation in our country, we now are accustomed to this, in Hungary and Poland and Russia. And uh, I think it's very disturbing.
0: Uh, Gabriel, what, what Tom is describing must sound familiar to you from, from the region, maybe from Spain, but mostly from, from Latin America, uh, which, as I mentioned, uh, is now mostly moving away where it, where it can from populism. So, um, why is that,
3: why is that going on? Well, I think it was Margaret Thatcher who said that the problem with socialism is that they run out of money. Other people's soon. money. Other people's money, yeah, and, and, and um, that has happened in, in Latin America and I think this is uh, under populist regimes and I think this is one of the, the key reasons for that move. I, um, it, it's very interesting because uh, now we have all these populist movement in, in Europe repeating uh, exactly what we saw in Latin America 10, 15 years ago. It's not that we don't have them anymore in Latin America. It's with it's direct connections with some of the very same populists in oh, yes. the region. Oh, uh, yes. And, and even financed. Yeah. Financed by the same uh, movement. Uh, you, you see this in Greece, you see this in Spain, you see this in Italy. And um, in fact uh, it's the case is even more interesting uh, some of these European parties populist parties were the advisors of Hugo Chavez yeah. 20 years ago and uh, and now they are the receivers of Maduro's money in order to establish similar parties in in, in Europe and uh, but the, the problem I think I think your question before was a, a very important or your statement was a very important one I think when you when people start uh, Losing trust in institutions, the alternative to have trust in leaders, and and that is the this is a huge problem, and um, if you convince the people that the crisis that you have is the crisis created by the system but the system, because the populist speaks like that. Nothing is specific and concrete. Everything is holistic, It's, it's the system. Everything is wrong. The media, the whole media is wrong. It's not that this is doing something wrong, it's the media wrong, it's the system wrong. The old system, the old people, uh, the people, the, the, the guys that are against the people versus the people that I represent, of course. And um, that, that, um, that is what we uh, unfortunately are seeing in Europe now and it's exactly what we saw in Latin America um, with Maduro, Evo Morales, uh, Correa and others uh, uh, 15, 10 years ago. And um, it's being reduced in Latin America in the last, it's going down in Latin America because I think people have started realizing that if you couldn't fix anything after 10, 15 years with changes of constitution and all kind of uh, changes, uh, it's not going to work with another 10 years. Um, In Europe, I think the crisis was a key factor uh, for the the economic crisis.
2: Mm -hmm. I, I, I just landed about four hours ago from Buenos Aires. So we had the Latin American Liberty Forum there, which ended last night, and I went to the airport, and now I'm here. And uh, we had this discussion, and it's really a good thing to see that populism has crested in Latin America, and it seems overall to be receding. And I asked a number of people why, and in Brazil, they said, well, one thing was we had some good judges. The car wash investigation was judges and prosecutors just following no matter where it led. And now we saw where it led, (laughs) into the president's office and into the offices of so many politicians of all of this cash they were getting from the state industries. Uh, So there was very good judges. The second thing was the libertarian movement there mobilized in a big way, hundreds of thousands of people. And it was so wonderful to see these huge crowds and then big signs saying, Menos Marx Mais Mises. Less Marx, more Mises, which is not what you expect in giant rallies of 400,000 people uh, as they saw in the big cities of Brazil. And it was a group of young people, Kim Categueri, who spoken at Cato Institute. He was at Cato University a year, two years ago. Um, at 19 years of age, said he was going to march through all of Brazil to end corruption. And he found millions of people to follow him. Uh, in uh, Argentina, with macri 's victory we 'll see what that plays out in terms of policy reforms if they 're going to be able to change things. but it was a real repudiation of these populist baronist policies so there 's a lot to learn from what 's happened in Latin American America and it makes it very inspired.
3: something very happened happened and, and, and something very similar happened in Guatemala a year ago when mm-hmm. the new president um, um, Came up with with a tax reform, and thousands of people went to the streets saying, "Raising taxes is not the solution. Looking into the spending, the public spending is the solution. You have to reduce public spending, not uh, increasing, um, not to increase uh, taxes." So, so it looks like it is um, it is a phenomenon that uh, what you saw that is happening all around Latin America, and despite the attempts of the State Department that has yes. been promoting populist uh, movement and organization in several uh, Latin American countries, uh, mainly in in Central America, in several countries in Central America, promoting um, populist movement, populist parties that we know that come from the um, ex-guerrilla groups and uh, for completely unknown reasons uh, they have been fostering and promoting them.
2: So one more thing, though, that, that was very important. The videos that Gloria Alvarez did were so powerful. Young woman, she did these very witty, clever videos about statism and corruption and populism and protectionism and so on. And these got seven, eight million views. Uh, in just in Argentina, President Macri said this is one of the reasons we won, was it so undermined the narrative of the Peronists that we can legislate our way into prosperity by taking money from the rich and so on. And she just blew those away so powerfully. She's a really great storyteller, and that's part of what we need to do better is to explode all the fallacies that they promote.
0: She of course was an, was an intern at the Cato Institute. She
2: was a Cato intern, absolutely.
0: Working for somebody that you know. Yes. <laughs> and she's she done was kind of great job. at UFM. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the tax protest in, yes. in in Guatemala didn't just happen by coincidence. It was because you have uh, the Francisco Marroquin University there. I would say that uh, one of the silver linings of the total crisis in Venezuela, which is political, economic, uh, social, and humanitarian, is that it serves as just a very good example for the entire region of what to avoid. And um, it sounds funny because most people around the world don't actually look to to Venezuela, but for a period of time, a lot of people were were taking it seriously. There was so much money coming in, the rhetoric was attractive up to a point, and then things got... bad, and then things got really bad. And I think that that has helped a lot uh, to, to turn the tide in the rest of the region. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened in, in Venezuela, and uh, I'm uh, unfortunately pessimistic about the future there, but it has helped uh, in the rest of the region. I have a question that, uh, that uh, has to do now with uh, the United Kingdom, and it's related to Brexit how should we interpret uh, Brexit in your view? Is this a case of economic nationalism and part of this trend or is this a case of economic liberalism? There were uh, friends of ours in Great Britain who were classical liberals and free traders who were making the case and they continue to to make the case today in favor of free trade and why uh, pulling out of the, the EU was something that would be consistent with greater liberty. And I think you can make good arguments in that, uh, in, in that direction. Uh, but then others, uh, I think Dalibor, you were one of them, uh, making very smart arguments why that was not a good idea. I wonder what you guys have to say about this.
1: I suppose um, the referendum result last year was brought about by a coalition of very different people. Some of them were advocating the UK's exit from the EU on classical liberal grounds Um, There were traditional conservatives who wanted to bring back democratic control over legislation away from Brussels to to Westminster. And then there were other people. There were people who thought that uh, leaving the EU was a means towards uh, restricting immigration. There were people on the far left in the Labour Party, maybe even including Jeremy Corbyn, who thought... The leaving the EU would empower the UK government maybe to get back to heavy-handed industrial policy 1970s style. Uh, There was a group of of, of Labour MPs advocating for for, for, for Brexit as as well. I think it's it's too early to tell what what the outcome is going to be. It's a little bit like this apocryphal story with, with, with the Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai who was asked, uh, supposedly in thousand nine hundred and seventy two during uh, president nixon 's visit uh, about the um, the effects of the French Revolution, he said it 's too early to tell so it's certainly <laughs> too early to tell uh, with regard to brexit now that the negotiations are only getting uh, underway uh, between between uh, the british government and and its European partners. but one concern I do have is that uh, whatever the effect on the United Kingdom is going to be um, Pro-market forces in Europe, on the continent, are losing their traditional ally. Um, the UK, uh, in spite of British complaining uh, about them not having any uh, any influence in the EU, they were actually an influential member state. They had one-third of the vote, and they still have one-third of the vote in the European Council, and, and many of the pro-market reforms in the EU were pushed through thanks to the British. And so, so when you think about uh, the forces that might steer the EU in a market-friendly, liberty-friendly direction today, uh, whether it's the Baltic states or, or Scandinavian countries, they are losing uh, an important friend, uh, an ally, and I think the conversations are not going to become more market-friendly in, in the EU 27 now, and, and I think that carries uh, carries risks for Europe, and it also carries risk ultimately for the for the United Kingdom, which can leave the EU, but can't really check out of Europe. It can't really drag the islands uh, halfway through the Atlantic.
2: There is one piece of good news. It was so bitter. I mean, I knew people who were, they agreed on everything except this. And, and they wouldn't talk after it. It was that bitter. Uh, people agreed on everything, but this issue they disagreed, and they just stopped talking. Um, Now that it's happened, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, there is a coalition now of all the people, whether they were for it or against it, to say, now let's have a free trade Britain. And Dan Hannon and others are trying to take the initiative on that to say, okay, it happened, we're getting out, let's move robustly for free trade and not let the Nigel Farages and the nationalists and the socialists and the laborites uh, destroy our country with protectionism, so there's there's a silver lining for Britain. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is the problem. Our continental friends are saying, don't leave us. <laughs> uh, all the free traders are leaving now in the UK, and that's put them in a terrible position, and they are regretting that.
3: I think I, that is very important. Uh, if, if they would have won, and uh, just, um, I mean, the, 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 the free market part of the, of the coalition that won, because you have the Ni- Nigel Farage, and you have the Daniel Hannan. Um, And if after that, you would have seen Daniel Hannan and the other free marketeers just sitting and enjoying the victory, Mm. I would be scared. But you see the even more active than before, um, building this new coalition. Uh, So I'm I'm very positive about what is going to happen. And also because you have the incentives in place. If you have a relatively small country, if they close their markets, they're going to suffer a lot. And they're going to see it immediately. So they're going to start uh, um, reshaping their policy as soon as they start suffering from, from the closed policy.
0: Well, we have time for one last question. And uh, what I would like to get your thoughts on is what actions uh, can be taken to overcome this populist trend?
3: Education, <laughs> I would say.
2: Education to focus on the importance of the rule of law. It's one of those things that we take for granted in the background, but people who have populist policies, this notion of a great leader who'll get things done, uh, we need to focus on the rule of law. Hayek wrote, and the road to serfdom, to he says, this is the first sign, the beginning of the end, when there's a general demand for someone who can get things done and cut through <clears throat> all the clutter of the rules. What we call checks and balances, and they call, um, uh, what's the word, deadlock, uh, gridlock, that nothing happens. It's when you move to that, you realize that you're on the road to... Uh, losing your republic. And so I think we need to focus very strongly on constitutional rules, checks and balances, the procedural republic, and not only on whether you get good or bad policies. That's important to us. But how you get them also matters. That it should be done in a constitutional way and not cutting corners. So that's, that's my uh, two cents for, for this uh, uh, defeating
1: populism of authoritarian populism. I think the problem is not a short-term political problem. It's not something that will go away if the French election goes one way or or, or another. I think it's a generational challenge. It's something that we'll be still talking about 10 years down the road, and I think the response needs to be primarily uh, intellectual uh, because authoritarian populism uh, thrives when... uh, defenders of free open society are on the defensive when they don't have convincing arguments that would capture public imagination. When, when, when the sort of case for <coughs> limited government, free markets, globalization has not been made uh, in a convincing way for a very long time, that's when people are tempted by, by these various authoritarian populist illusions. So I think that makes the work of organizations such as Cato or, or AI, if I may say so, uh, all the more important. And I, I think, I think the, the thrust of the response must be must be an intellectual one. It might involve finding perhaps new allies, rethinking the old coalitions. Maybe uh, we have you know less in common with some people and more common with 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 some other people. I think there'll be a lot of political churn, um, but ultimately it's about winning the war of ideas?
3: I think it's education and, and research. And, and I think it's key, the rule of law, to, to teach. I mean, I'm against core curriculum, but if we could have a one core curriculum, it would be just to teach what rule of law is about. And, and so I am very sympathetic to what Tom and Hayek um, said. Uh, studies, we need studies showing what uh, populace has produced all around the world. And, um, and show clear results, very easy to understand results, and to show that it's not a left or right thing, it's a left and right thing. Um, and that is a product of democracy, so we have to be very careful. We, we, we love democracy, but we have to be extremely careful because this is the kind of results you can have if you don't have a clear idea of the basic thing that you have on top of democracy, or that should be even more important than, than democracy. And uh, as you were mentioning, Gloria Alvarez, I think, uh, Gloria Alvarez is a very good example. She has had a tremendous influence in Argentina and many other countries that are reducing populism. Uh, and the reason is she studied rule of law. She studied uh, at UFM, obviously, he came here to cater to. She studied rule of law, the importance, she's very articulated, she's very good, but she had an education that showed the problems of uh, populism and, and she, was, she had the courage. And she was ready to go there and videos and, 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 and do a tremendous job. So we need to educate a generation to show studies. Um, that's what I would say. We have to be good at what the populists do,
0: yeah. but be specific about what we say, not, not general. <laughs> I found that uh, in trying to convince people, uh, you know, the populists are always talking about it, the abstract, and they don't give you very many details, or, or are much concerned with the actual results of their policies. Whereas. Uh, I think that the liberal approach is most convincing when you talk to people directly uh, about uh, their own personal experiences and common sense. If the government passes such and such a regulation, what will you do? Are you going to go right around it, or or do you think that it's a good idea to give all these politicians this money in order to do this project? Do you think that they're actually going to do a good job? No. But if you ask the question in the way that the populists do, don't you think the government should take care of people and do this, the same people will say yes. So I think we have our our work cut out for us, but there is a way to convince people, which is by directly appealing to common sense and and direct experience, it seems to me. I'm afraid we've run out of of time. Uh, This this is a topic that we're gonna be talking about for a long time, so I'm sure that we'll all be back in this auditorium and all over the place.